0: Good morning, Liberty Collins. Well, it's good to join with you, even if virtually. Um, we did enjoy living for four years at the start of our marriage in West Philadelphia, and uh, then we're in central Jersey for seven years. So it's been fun to be back in the area, this side of the state, uh, this uh, region uh, that we have spent so many fun years with and has so many good experiences in. Uh, as we uh, look at the scriptures this morning, we're going to be reading from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we're going to start at Genesis chapter 27 with verse 41. So I invite you to follow along as I read through the end of chapter 7 and into the first few verses of chapter 28. Now, Esau hated Jacob Because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son... Obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away. Till your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, as we gather this morning, uh, we are geographically dispersed, but we also in many ways are spiritually dispersed, each coming from very different places. So I ask that you would do what you do with your word and use our reflections on it ...to particularly speak to each person who listens this morning. We ask that those who are hurting would be comforted. We ask that uh, those who have questions... ...would hear uh, thoughtful answers... ...or avenues of further inquiry. We ask that those who perhaps do not see the way that they are hurting others around them... ...would be confronted with that reality... We ask that you'd use the reflection upon your word to knit us closer to yourself and to one another and help, help us to find hope and healing in the midst of our angry lives and angry world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I slammed the car door behind me as hard as I could and then stormed away from my wife Rebecca in a rage. We were living in Jersey and we were less than one mile from home and another driver had cut in on us from the left turn only lane. Uh, In order to go straight, they had not signaled their intentions, of course not, Uh, and to help them realize their mistake in driving, navigating incorrectly that that standard New Jersey jug jug handle turn, I accelerated quickly so that I could tailgate them the rest of the way uh, uh, near our home. At which point my wife had the audacity to criticize my driving as dangerous. As if I would endanger Rebecca and my daughter Anastasia in the car seat in the back. By the time I parked in front of our apartment, I may have been in the driver's seat, but I was totally out of control. Anger is one of our most basic, powerful emotions, and we can all identify with experiencing overwhelming fury. Here at Liberty Collinswood, you've been reflecting together recently on community to push back against the forces that are isolating us from one another right now. We need community with others. We are social creatures, but community is hard. The Bible is refreshingly blunt about how difficult community is. Our families are, in some ways, our most foundational community. It's uh, the place where we learn to interact with other human beings, the building block of wider society. And the book of Genesis, about three-quarters of it, is telling the story of one family over four generations as they struggle to maintain their community with one another and with the God who has established a special relationship with them. In our passage this morning, we get a case study in the power of anger in its ability to detonate communities and families and leave behind little more than smoking rubble. As we reflect upon this story of Esau's murderous anger, we're also going to dissect a little bit how we handle our own anger, respond to the anger of others, and then in the midst of that, understand the anger of God. As I speak this morning, I do so as an anger expert. I've already tipped my hand a little bit there. Not in anger management, but just anger. Uh, The pressure cooker uh, that we've all experienced recently with COVID and lockdown, the disruption of everyday life and the barrage of stress has revealed anew how very angry I can be. And then the people who are close to me who have No contribution to all of those sources of stress are usually the ones who then feel the overflow of my frustrations. We were uh, enjoying an outdoor meal a few months ago with a new family that we had gotten to know. And we were talking about how we were navigating uh, lockdown at that time and uh, having just come out of it. And I mentioned how it was uh, in some ways very disappointing because it revealed to me anew how angry I could be. And the, uh, the hosts expressed surprise because my normal demeanor is pretty calm. And when they express surprise, my children just rolled their eyes and chuckled to themselves. But there's good news for anger experts like me. Uh, we can also become experts in receiving grace and forgiveness for our anger that can quench it and redirect us. So as we get into this story and see how it might be relevant for us this morning, we're going to see anger incited, then anger deflected, and then finally anger extinguished. Anger incited, deflected, and extinguished. First we see the anger of Esau incited. In our passage, Esau is murderously furious And if you remember the family history, if you've read it before, uh, you would understand why. Let me bring you up to speed if it's less familiar for you. Before this, at the end of a long, exhausting day of work, Esau's twin brother Jacob had preyed upon his brother's physical weakness and impulsiveness to swindle Esau out of his birthright. The uh, the privileges that he would enjoy being the firstborn, even if it was uh, just by a matter of minutes, being the elder of twins. And after that, as if that wasn't bad enough, Jacob then joins with Esau's mother, Rebecca, and the two of them collude together to deceive Esau's elderly father, Isaac, into giving his fatherly blessing. To Jacob instead of Esau, which was what Isaac was intending to do. How could he not be angry after being wronged in such profound ways? His anger is completely legitimate. He's been swindled by his own brother, deceived by his own family. If we were in his place, we would be angry too. You might be getting angry just listening to the story. We get angry at modern day swindlers. Bogus investment schemes that defraud the elderly out of dwindling life savings. Doctors or pharmaceutical companies that push excessive painkiller prescriptions that then wipes out the lives of those patients in a haze of addiction and overdose. I've done in western Pennsylvania funerals for families impacted by such evils. These scenarios unfold around us every day touching our lives and the lives of those close to us. And if our pulses ever stop pounding, all we have to do is take the quickest look at news headlines to give us plenty more reasons to be outraged. Because these situations that we see around us, they are unjust. They are wrong. There's so much that we could be angry about. Anger in itself It's not by definition bad. One of my professors, the late David Powlison, defines anger as active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Such that there are certain situations where if it didn't make you angry, you almost feel like there's something wrong with you or those... Who don't recognize the offense? If there's so much anger out there, why then aren't things better? Don't people get angry in order to change things? So why don't they change? Because our fury is often faulty. In Esau's case, we see that his anger is selective and ineffective. First, it's selective. He takes little notice of his own contributions to the dysfunctional family dynamics. He did, in fact, agree to the terms of Jacob's terrible bargain for the birthright. He could have just said no and looked for food elsewhere. He glosses over ways that he has repudiated the family, family's traditions and hopes and dreams, which you h- get hints of in the passage this morning. We could talk about the birthright, or we could talk about the choices he's made with his marriages. It just so happens that Esau has gotten married not once, but twice, not consecutively, but at the same time. And these marriages are driving his mother crazy, not because she's a closet racist or an overt racist against Hittites, but because these marriages are a blatant rejection of the family's hopes we hear at the end of the passage that we read this allusion to a promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Abraham, God is going to work through Abraham and his family to create a new society, a new humanity that is intended to replace the morally bankrupt and oppressive societies living in Palestine at that time. As part of that family, Esau is supposed to model a lifestyle unlike that of his neighbors. But what does he do? He marries women from among those very societies which is a flagrant disregard of the family's most cherished privileges and the promises of God to them. Because God is not being racist in this passage either. Throughout the Bible, God's people are a mixed multitude who are welcoming strangers from many different nations on the basis of their shared faith in the God of Abraham. In God's kingdom, shared faith in him always trumps shared blood. Always. And God always intends shared faith in him to produce a new ethic, a new lifestyle that leads to genuine human happiness and wholeness. So God's plans always include welcoming new fellow believers from these diverse peoples into this new family and community. The problem with Any transracial marriage that's mentioned in the Bible, it has nothing actually to do with it being transracial. It has everything to do with whether the pull of that relationship is going to be away from a good God who's creating a new humanity or back towards our unjust human societies in which we uh, hurt one another in ways that we often are even oblivious to. Esau's anger was selective he ignored the reality uh, that he had impacted his family and their hopes in effect he had disqualified himself from his birthright even without his cheating brother's help but esau's anger is also ineffective it's curious that in the uh, passage it says that esau nursed his plan for vengeance in the in the uh, it says Uh, he said to himself, and the Hebrew is actually even more uh, explicit that, he said, in his heart, which we'd normally understand to be secretly Uh, reflecting on these things but apparently Esau is not so good at keeping secrets because somehow Rebecca knows about Esau's plan perhaps he was not quite so private as he might have thought or maybe he's one of those people maybe you're one of these people who uh, has the tendency to mutter under your breath not quite as quietly as you thought you were doing whatever the case Esau's anger is frustrated and ineffective much like many of our angry plans ever happened to you your peak is up and uh, you make a plan for how you're going to address the situation I remember one particular instance where uh, something had happened and I needed to sit down and talk with somebody and I spent a lot of a lot of time just in my head thinking this is what needs to happen this is what I need to say I need to set this person straight and then the moment came and my great pre-planned monologue was entirely inappropriate. The circumstances actually were vastly different than I had imagined. So my great, well-rehearsed uh, speech was pointless, and all that time I had spent winding myself in my, up in my head was also pointless. So if you're like me, you wish you could just stop rehearsing those conversations at had time in your head because they just end up being so futile. This is uh, part of why God tells us uh, in the New Testament, the anger, of God, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God would be if our anger did change things uh, that ought to be changed. It's the standard that we look to, but often our anger is ineffective because we have the wrong goal. Our standards are Selfish. Uh, Or we aren't aiming for God's righteousness. Or we're using the wrong means. We are approaching the situation in a way that God has told us will not work. That our own life experience probably has demonstrated does not work as we've handled conflict futilely time and time again. So what do we do with our angry frustration? In this passage, Esau's anger is deflected. His mother, Rebecca, intervenes. She, she suggests that Jacob stay a while with her brother Laban so then she can summon Jacob to return home when it is safe. Rebecca shows a lot of wisdom in how she responds even though she contributed to the explosion in many ways uh, earlier. She responds wisely to Esau's anger. In high-tension situations, many of us are tempted to respond in kind. Anger for anger. You can get angry, I can get more angry. You can yell, I can yell louder. We escalate an already bad situation, which is not likely to make things better. When do arguments stop? When somebody bites their tongue. When somebody drops the volume on their voice. Instead of direct confrontation, Rebecca tries to de-escalate the situation. She maneuvers it so that Jacob is removed from harm's way so that tempers can calm. That's a helpful reminder for those of us who tend to be conflict escalators. But Rebecca also uses the situation to steer toward something productive. A reminder For those of us prone to be conflict avoiders. In fact, as you read the wider story, it's possible that Esau, in part, married women from families that uh, were not approved in some ways, in part because uh, his father Isaac did not show the same care and guidance that his father Abraham had shown with Isaac. And so Rebecca is stepping into the gap here and is helping Jacob find. Uh, a wife that would be more suitable for him and for the work God is doing in their family instead of simply avoiding conflict Rebecca turns it to a useful outcome it's a strategy to protect Jacob but it's also makes positive use of what we could t- call Jacob's strategic exile from the family now let me stop and just underline that for a bit it is wise and right and good to remove yourself from a dangerous situation. You are never under obligation to simply endure verbal or physical attacks of another person. In some situations, there may not be a way out, but fortunately in our society, there often is. You can speak to a law enforcement officer. You can speak to a pastor who hopefully will be quick to connect you with uh, somebody who can help you. Several years ago, a student asked me a question. It was after a sermon I'd just been preaching on marriage. I made an offhand allusion to abusive relationships and how those can be uh, uh, different than our normal marriage relationships. And so she caught me after the sermon. She asked, so what you're saying, uh, my dad threatened the life of my mom and me. So you're saying it was okay for her to divorce her dad? Which I then answered, not pausing at all. Absolutely. Your mom did a great job. It was wise of herself to, pro- to protect her and her daughter. Remove yourself from a dangerous situation. Get safety, get help. And her story is also a reminder that not everyone that you see, you know, as you begin gathering, you're going to start seeing more people back uh, in worship for those of you who are in person. Not everyone that you see coming to church is coming from neat, tidy families. Most of our families are a lot more like Isaac and Rebecca's train wreck of a family if your own family is either mildly or deeply dysfunctional you're actually not alone at all especially among God's people but there's also a positive side to responding to negative situations counselor Leslie Vernick says in her book the emotionally destructive relationship that uh, when we are Uh, confronted with behavior like Esau's we should not only try to escape the situation but also use it to develop our own character so that you can respond well into the future with that person or in similar situations now Jacob doesn't set out to do that in any way Uh, but almost accidentally he falls into character formation if you read further into the story. He's mistreated his brother, and then he goes and he stays with his uncle Laban, who then mistreats him in many of the same ways that Jacob has treated Esau. It's the sort of experience likely to cultivate both brotherly sympathy and personal humility. Vernick also highlights that actively de-escalating a situation, possibly by removing yourself from it, is a way of truly serving angry people it's not merciful to let someone continue in their dangerous anger unchecked partly because our fury clouds our judgment and that appears true in Esau's case he's fantasizing about killing his brother without any real reflection on the consequences Rebecca is more perceptive. She sees the situation unfolding. She knows the cost. She says, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Her husband is on his deathbed. There's been a conflict as they uh, think about the future after his death. And then the murder of one son would then necessitate, uh, according to the law of the day, the the execution of her other son. Esau's anger uh, is leading him down a path of self-destruction his anger is disrupting the community of his family but it's the other members of that very community that are intervening to prevent esau from indulging his anger in self-defeating and self-destructive ways i actually remember i when i was in seminary i worked at our campus bookstore and we were fighting against Amazon uh, as they were putting bookstores out of business all over uh, the place. And there, were, there was our store that's in Philadelphia. And there was a similar bookstore that was out on the West Coast. And we were both kind of doing the same, same thing. And uh, then we started seeing these strange posts from uh, the guy who had the store out on the West Coast. And he was furious with his customers for a variety of reasons. And I realized in the midst of that, that we got all of the same frustrations. We got all of the same negative feedback in our work, but we were part of a team. And so that when we got those snarky emails coming in, we could take it to one another and talk each other down. We didn't just go start posting things on the front page of the bookstore. Uh, And, uh, That helped us uh, endure, Um, and the person who didn't enjoy that community, their store collapsed. Uh, It's usually bad business practice to uh, yell online at your customers. We need community to help us process and get through anger. Anger's like wildfire. Unchecked, it consumes everything in its past, but... When would anger be satisfied? Anger extinguished forever. The Bible tells us that God's character is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He's slow to anger, but it is there. There's a judgment against evil. How do those two things go together? In most traditional societies, the idea of God's just anger is just intuitive. What traditional people struggle to accept is the idea of God's mercy. And then in most modern societies, the idea of God's mercy is intuitive. What modern people uh, struggle to accept is the idea of God's just anger. Although that uh, disposition towards uh, mercy is in many ways the lingering cultural legacy of biblical christianity and the gospel and i think what we see now is uh we see our our anger flaring over so many issues as i walked uh for a few minutes around collinswood i saw so many yard signs and and i resonated with many of the sentiments expressed in them but we're seeing in ourselves that we do care about justice. But in the midst of a society that's, uh, in some sense, having a revival of passion for justice, how do you deal with offenders? How do you deal with cancel culture? Is there any way to recover when you have violated other people or other communities? We all deal with uh, the issue of justice and we struggle, uh, we struggle to process how do we treat those with whom we disagree so profoundly? How do we treat people who have outraged us or uh, hurt us deeply? Like Esau, our anger is often selective and ineffective. Wouldn't it be great to know That there is someone, anyone, whose anger is perfectly informed, entirely accurate, and powerfully effective to eradicate evil. That's why the anger of God is good news. But if it is, how do we survive the anger of God? Is there any grace available, not just for that wife and her daughter but for that angry husband who threatened their lives is there any grace available for me the father and husband who endangered his wife and daughter If you visit the Eiffel Tower in Paris, there are scores of vendors who are walking around and uh, they will sell you these little miniature Eiffel Tower souvenirs. And the souvenir doesn't compare to the reality at all. It's, it just provokes the least remembrance of the reality. It's a small imitation of the original. And in this story, anger prompts a father to send his son into exile. An exile during which his son is commissioned to find a bride and perpetuate the family promise to bring a company of peoples that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, so that when the son returns from his exile, having accomplished his mission of becoming a vast multitude, anger will be extinguished and he will receive in full his promised inheritance. Isaac and Rebekah's family, Jacob and Esau, They don't extinguish anger forever, but they're a little Eiffel Tower souvenir version of the much more glorious reality that God is working to extinguish anger forever and its incitements, whether at our sin, but that uh, we don't respond to as we ought to. He responds not with anger for our anger, He doesn't escalate the situation. Instead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit provides a way to not only deflect but extinguish legitimate anger. The Father forms a plan to recover humanity to himself. Jesus voluntarily accepts exile from the presence of the Father in heaven that by his voluntary brotherhood with us in his incarnation he might win for himself his bride the church a company of peoples drawn from all nations and in that way he blesses all of the world by sharing with us his inheritance as crown prince of the universe but with this one difference he doesn't evade faulty anger he absorbs it God's perfect and righteous anger against sin. You cannot ignore the incitements to anger because that's just perpetuating oppression. But Christ absorbs God's anger. That's good anger. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God's Anger and wrath is like a raging wildfire that is clearing out dead, the dead brush of our lives. And that should consume us, but it need not. If you've followed some of the stories about wildfires out in the western part of our nation, you'll know that if you are caught in those situations, if those volunteer fire fighters are caught with a wall of fire coming at them, the only way to survive is to bend down and actually light the ground around you on fire and let it burn that patch, and then stand on that patch while it goes, the fire goes over your head. Because Jesus has been scorched by the fire of God's wrath against us, we can huddle ourselves in him, and that rightful wrath against sin and evil will not touch us while God can still declare those things were not right or good. And once we've done that, we have our own opportunity to be little souvenir-sized reminders of God's towering grace to us. We might still slam doors. We might plan dazzling displays of our correctness in elaborate pre-planned conversations. We might raise our voices and, God forbid, sometimes our fists. But we don't need to stay there. We should not be able to nurse those bitter angers if we are reminded over and over and over and over again that Jesus bore the anger of God against my evil and it's not up to us or our anger to right the wrongs of the world even if we, have, uh, we do have opportunities to address them. We don't fight. We don't fix them ultimately. And we don't need to because he's extinguished his anger against me without snuffing me out in Jesus. In Jesus, I can find a way to extinguish my anger against those around me, to respond with wisdom rather than just escalation. I can find a way to show grace and mercy to others as grace and mercy have been shown to me in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. While we are separated geographically, we get to do something that the church throughout the ages has done. As the church has been separated geographically around the world, one of the ways that we show our unity together in the church is by sharing together in our confession of faith. So so let us say what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon, live, speak, and serve at you later.